0: Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly web scene for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called A Profound Mystery. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday August the 23rd 2015. The story of Jesus has become many things to many people across 2,000 years. But there's one thing it's not. The story of Jesus is not easy to live or simple to understand. If someone tells you that, cover your ears and run away fast. In the Gospel of John this week, chapter 6, when Jesus called himself the living bread from heaven, the sent one, and the holy one of God, We read that the Jews murmured. They argued sharply among themselves. Wasn't Jesus the son of Joseph, they asked? Don't we know his parents and his family? How can he say such things? His closest followers were equally baffled. John says that the disciples grumbled. Who can accept such hard sayings, they protested. From that time on, says John, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. Nor did Jesus candy coat any of this awkward agitation. Does this scandalize you? Jesus asked them. Do you want to leave too? When Jesus taught in his hometown of Nazareth, the village that had helped to raise him took offense at him. When his family saw the raucous crowd that hounded him, they went to take charge of him, for they said, he's out of his mind. And for John, he says that even his own brothers did not believe in him. This language of scandal and offense echoes Paul's later description of the gospel as to the Jews, a stumbling block, and to Greeks, foolishness. In Ephesians 5.32, Paul calls the gospel a profound mystery. No doubt that's why he appeals to his readers in this week's lectionary in Ephesians 6. Pray for me, that whenever I open my mouth, words may be given me, so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly, as I should. This word, mystery, is a buzzword to New Testament scholars, and for good reason. It occurs 20 times in the Greek New Testament, 16 times in Paul, seven of which are in Ephesians alone. So at some fundamental level, the story of Jesus is an irreducible mystery. Perhaps gospel faith is a classic case of simplicity beyond complexity, or post-critical naivete. It's something that you can describe and affirm, but never fully explain. A mystery is not unknowable. Paul says that the mystery of the gospel has been fully revealed. It's been disclosed, made manifest, unveiled. But we see it only darkly, as through a cloudy mirror. Who is adequate for these things, Paul asked the Corinthians. No one, that's who. The story of Jesus began as some sort of secret, In all three synoptic Gospels, right after the greatest of Epiphanies, there's a command of secrecy. Don't tell anyone what you have seen, Jesus told his disciples after the Transfiguration. Back in 1901, the German Lutheran scholar Georg Friedrich Edward William Vrede published a book called The Messianic Secret, it explored a motif that's present in all four Gospels and conspicuously prominent in the Gospel of Mark. The phrase stuck, the Messianic secret, and ever since, it has been scholarly shorthand for this mysterious phenomenon in the Gospels. Depending on how you count them, about 15 different times in the Gospels, Jesus explicitly suppresses knowledge about his identity. There are at least 13 occurrences in Mark alone. Jesus conceals knowledge about himself in different ways. Several times he silenced the evil spirits that he exercised. We read, He would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. He ordered his own disciples to keep silent about what they had experienced. After Peter's confession of Christ as Messiah, and after the Transfiguration, as we've just seen, Jesus also told some of the people he had healed to keep silent. We read, Jesus sent him away with a strong warning see to it that you don't tell this to anyone. In private discussions away from the crowds, Jesus explained everything about the secret of the kingdom to his disciples, the insiders, whereas those on the outside got only obfuscating parables. And those parables, we read in another place, simultaneously revealed and hid the truth. When he traveled, we read that sometimes Jesus, quote, did not want anyone to know where they were. In John 7, for example, he went to the Feast of Tabernacles in secret in order to hide his identity. And then in the Beatitudes of Matthew chapter 6, Jesus taught us to give, to pray, and to fast, all in secret. God the Father, he says, will see what is done in secret. Until he burst onto the public scene for three short years of ministry, Jesus lived for thirty years in total obscurity, a secret life about which we know nothing at all. The earliest Christians who worshiped in the catacombs of Rome were criticized by pagans for their secret meetings and bizarre rituals, rumored to include cannibalism, incest, infanticide. These charges were common enough that numerous second-century writers felt constrained to refute them. And so the historian Gary Wills makes an astute observation. Whereas scholars have long tried to distinguish between the authentic Jesus of real history and the mythical Christ of post-Easter faith, Wills insists that if we were successful in that endeavor, Jesus would appear to us as even more mysterious, not less. In some places today, confessing the gospel is a means to social acceptance and upward mobility. That was hardly the case for Paul. He was a criminal, not a celebrity. In the book of Acts, Luke records eight murder attempts on Paul's life. The ninth one was successful. In the epistle this week, Paul writes from a jail cell. Paul traveled 10,000 miles proclaiming the good news of this secret and mysterious gospel, that God was in Christ, revealing his love and redeeming the world. Don't be ashamed of the gospel, Paul wrote to the young Timothy. And to the Romans, he wrote, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. For books this week, I review a title by David Grossman. It's translated from the Hebrew by Jessica Cohen. The title is called Falling Out of Time, New York Vintage, 2014, 193 pages. David Grossman, born in 1954, is an Israeli writer who was born and lives in Jerusalem. His dozen award-winning books of both fiction and nonfiction have gained a global audience and been translated into 36 languages. This present book is a genre-bending book, hard to decategorize. It reads like a play, novel, drama, and a long prose poem. Whereas the genre is a hybrid, Grossman's theme is crystal clear. The grief of a parent over the death of a child. The ten or so characters in the story have all been wounded by disaster. They live, if you can can call it living, on the gallows of grief. For all of them, death is not an absence, but a fearsome presence that haunts them. The characters are types, signaling that no one is exempt from the grief of the grim reaper. There's walking man, net mender, cobbler, the duke, the elderly math teacher, and so on. Together they walk to find their loved ones, but they discover that there is no there there. In grief, space and time seem not to apply to the dead. There is no there where they can be said to be. Similarly, as one of the characters puts it, I seem to understand only things inside time. Even his grief is, quote, trapped in time, whereas his lost loved one is outside of time, and thus the title of the book. By the end of the book, the tone has softened. One parent relishes the memory, you loved us and were loved, and you knew that you were loved. And a little boy observes at the end of the story, there is breath, there is breath inside the pain, there is breath. There's nothing in the novel that tells you this, even on the cover, But Grossman's 20-year-old son, Uri, was a tank commander who was killed in 2006 in Lebanon during the war between Israel and the Hezbollah. Falling Out of Time is not a political book. It's a book of deeply personal pain that addresses a most universal theme. Once again, David Grossman. The title falling out of time. For movies this week I review a new movie released earlier this summer called Amy. Watching this two-hour documentary of the singer-songwriter Amy Winehouse is like watching the proverbial slow-motion train wreck. You know you should turn away but you keep watching, even eagerly so. In a PBS interview, the director Asif Kapadia said he wanted the film to humanize Winehouse. He does this by making the audience not only increasingly uncomfortable as we watch Winehouse self-destruct, but by intimating that we are also complicit. We are the ones who watch her videos, buy the CDs, laugh when Jay Leno makes fun of her drug abuse, joke about the merciless paparazzi, and so on. In one of the few tender scenes Winehouse makes a recording with the 88-year-old Tony Bennett, who later compares her talent to the likes of the jazz great Ella Fitzgerald. Amy premiered at the 2015 Cannes Film Festival earlier this spring, in May 2015. A documentary film about Amy Winehouse. And finally, for poetry this week, we've posted a poem by the Nobel laureate Wysława Symborska of Poland. The title is called In Praise of Self-Deprecation. The buzzard has nothing to fault himself with. Scruples are alien to the Black Panther. Piranhas do not doubt the rightness of their actions. The rattlesnake approves of himself without reservations. The self-critical jackal does not exist. The locust, alligator, trichina. Horsefly, they all live as they live and are glad of it. The killer whale's heart weighs 100 kilos, but in other respects it is light. There is nothing more animal-like than a clear conscience on the third planet of the sun. Vyslava Szymborska Polish Nobel Laureate. The title, In Praise of Self-Deprecation. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, August the 23rd, 2015. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.